I am one of under 100 Black American women to earn a PhD from a department of physics. The number of PhDs granted in physics in the United States every year is 2,000. So under 100 of those across all of U.S. history has been granted to Black women. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I'm joined by my co-host, Rabbi Sandra Lawson. Hi, Sandra. How are you? Hi, Deborah. I'm really glad that we're doing this, and this is our second time uh, having a conversation together, and we get to um, invite someone that I have admired for a very long time, um, and um, I'm just excited about this conversation. Me too. Me too. So happy to be in partnership with you on so many yeah. things, including this, and especially for this conversation. Let me introduce to everyone today, our guest is Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and a core faculty member in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. She writes a lot. She's a columnist for New Scientist and Physics World, and she has just published an amazing book called The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. There's more to say about her bio. Um, her scientific research focuses on particles and cosmology, and she also conducts research in Black feminist science, technology, and society studies. Chanda, welcome, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, one of the first questions I have is, how are you doing? Um, you know, we were all in this 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 pandemic, the uh, trial of Derek uh, Ch Chauvin, the person who killed George Floyd, is happening right now, um, and causing many of us to sort of replay all of this in our minds. How are you holding up? I. Right, so I think I'm I'm struggling along with everybody else, and I also feel lucky about the ways in which uh, I'm not struggling, and I'm trying to to be mindful of of those two truths simultaneously existing, and you know, it's also I think in addition to just kind of reliving what happened to George Floyd and the way that we all experienced that last year, also being the spouse of a Taiwanese American Jew means um you know dealing with what happened in atlanta and we actually have a taiwanese american jewish family friends who live in atlanta and so trying to keep an eye out um it's i don't know it's like a weird thing it's been a tough month year decade mm -hmm. century millennium i don't i don't know exactly where that that cutoff is um but you know doing the best that i can <laughs> yeah thank you Thank you for sharing so forthrightly. And um, I think one of the things I want to ask you to reflect on is like in, in reading your biography and starting to read your work, um, holding those two truths, that's something that you do so well. Holding multiple realities alongside each other is something that it seems that you you've lived it out and that that's that's what some of your work is 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 seeking after. Does that does that seem right? Yeah, I, I, I almost think in some ways, navigating multiple paths that seem like they're um, set up to run in different directions is something that I was born into. 
as someone who was born black and Ashkenazi Jewish. And, you know, I grew up, my mom would say poor. I've always said working class. Um, and I think probably the difference there is that my mom did a really good job of hiding things from me. Sometimes I was raised primarily by um, a single parent by Margaret Prescott. I like to say her name. Um, and going from that to training to become a scientist where people like me typically haven't trained to become scientists in a professional setting. I went to Harvard for college and found myself navigating an environment that felt like completely foreign socioeconomically and culturally. And also for the first time there really trying to contend with my Jewishness outside of my household and outside of my high school, um, which was really the first place that I was sort of challenged to think through who am I as a Jew. And so I think that it's, it's always been a feature of my experience in my life that I'm trying to navigate at least two, if not more things that don't necessarily always go together to try and literally physically embody all of those things at the same time. And so I think it's maybe not particularly surprising that that in some ways has come out in the, the way I've conducted myself as a scientist um, in terms of drawing links with, with social issues and, and with black feminist thought. Yeah. Can, can we, like, I just want to like highlight like how awesome it is that you're a physicist and in our pre-conversation, you know, um, like, can you just talk about like how the, the rarity of being a black physicist, astrophysicist, the theoretical physicist and all that, all, all of that. Right. So to situate things in context, I am one of under, as of this moment, although I think that number might be changing this year, under 100 Black American women to earn a PhD from a department of physics. And, you know, that's a, that's a small number, especially, you know, I just want to remind people that the population of the United States is like over 350 million now, right? But to make it a little more specific, the number of PhDs granted in physics in the United States every year is 2,000. So under 100 of those across all of US history has been granted to black women. And, you know, someone might say, well, why mention gender? The numbers for black people in general are very low. So it's worth saying that the, the first PhD granted to an African-American in the United States was to Edward Boucher at Yale University in the early 1870s in physics. Hmm. So the first black man to earn a PhD in physics was actually in the 19th century. And the first black woman to earn a PhD in physics was um, about a hundred years later in 1972. Wow. So even within the black community, there are gendered disparities. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm unfortunately more unusual than I should be. I wish the wish listeners could see like Sandra and I, because we're on Zoom, we're recording this on Zoom and Sandra and I are both like, we're like, both, both like either shaking our heads no or nodding like vigorously, like just in, in awe of, of your work as a pioneer. Um, and even as you're trying to bring others along with you, I want to ask about like the nature of that work that it seems to me it's both, it's, it's a combination of necessary, like non, like you, you have to make this space for yourself joyful like liberatory so so with with so with an edge of joyful and utterly exhausting does that does that seem yes right? I, I i you know one of the interesting things that 
you know, now that I'm coming into the last year of my thirties and people are starting to think of me as like an auntie, as opposed to like one of, one of the, the young folks, I guess. I think if there was one thing that I could communicate to young people about the experience of taking a path that is not particularly well-trodden by, by people who are like you is that it is better to go in groups than to go alone. Yeah. And we certainly, particularly in, you know, an American context have a tendency to celebrate barrier breakers as if it was like all fun and games along the way, when actually being a barrier breaker is a pretty crappy experience in a lot of ways, because you're on your own. Um, you don't have some, you have people ahead of you who can mentor you in some ways, like people who've done what you've done before, but maybe not from your perspective or with your particular needs or with your particular challenges who will support you, hopefully, and cheer you on along the way. But there will be limits to their ability to give you very specific guidance that's rooted in the very specific experience that you're having. And it is better to have a group of people who are confused with you than to be confused by yourself. And so I think there can be the way that we talk about Black women in science now, particularly in the post-hidden figures era, Mm -hmm. is you know, hidden figures put all of the bad stuff that happened in, in montages, mostly the film, mm-hmm. we're not talking about the book, but in montages that are set to music, things are they, happening. They, Disney, they Disneyfied it. They Disneyfied it. The white guy comes and beats the crap out of the, the, the bathroom sign, mm-hmm. um, which like, you know, didn't actually happen in real life. Like that, that moment never happens. Um, but those moments are can be set to music, but you have to make the playlist, right? Like I, I literally made a playlist for the book, which people can find on Spotify if you look for The Disordered Cosmos. And I actually listen to that playlist a lot. I spent a lot of time preparing it. So don't say anything bad about it. It's awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and, I love, we haven't heard it yet and, and we love it. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I really want to encourage people to be less focused on being a first, even though, right, like I'm the first black woman to hold a faculty position and a tenure track faculty position in theoretical physics and also the first in, in particle theory. And, you know, there's a certain cachet, I guess, in, in saying that, but also I would have been fine if I was like the first, second and third with like two other people. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think I want, I want people to think collectively and, and more in communal terms. Yeah. Yeah. Sandra, I feel like I want to pause and, and just talk a little bit about um, like across the reconstructionist movement, that's something that I think we're really attentive to. I want to talk just for a second about uh, the importance of being an ally that I, you know, that, that one of the things that I feel is, I, I, I think Chanda, you name it really clearly. There's only so much that allies can do. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to be the best possible al- allies. And that, that, that's, that, that's what I feel like part of my work is, in supporting Sandra in her work and in helping to transform the Reconstructionist movement and and the broader Jewish community is is being the best possible door opener, champion, got your back kind of person. Um, And I think that, you know, I mean, we see, like when when Sandra started in rabbinical school, you were the only person of color. And and when you graduated, there were a handful of others. But Mm -hmm. I think that, I, th- I think the the isolation that you just described in science, Chanda, like I think we see it in the Jewish community too often as well. And that's one of the things that we're really working to alter. 
I also think it like racism feeds off of isolation. And so if you are the only one, um, you, you're not processing your experiences with other people. And then as soon as I started talking with other, you know, rabbis of color, um, that it's a collective group, it's, it's healing. It's, um, I have no words for it, but it, it's definitely better to be in a collective than to be, to be alone. Um, and at the same time, um, I'm sitting in awe, of l- listening to you about talk about physics and um, being a ba- being a barrier breaker. And I also, at the same time, understand how challenging and difficult and, and lonely and and horrible that can be. Yeah, I I guess I will actually say just to like give a little bit of context mm-hmm. to this conversation that I paid a I paid a lot of attention. I shouldn't just say like in the past. I pay a lot of attention to people who are barrier breakers in their respective environments. And so, for example, Rabbi Sandra, like you, I mean, first of all, as like a a black queer woman reconstructionist Jew, when I first learned about you, when you were a rabbinical student, um, I was like, wait, okay, I'm not alone in this giant reconstructionist community. Right. And, and I think, you know, I have since in the, in the intervening time period met other Black Jews, but I actually think that you were one of the first that I was aware of. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I was interested in your story and in your journey, partly because I saw parallels between what you were doing and what I was doing. And I, w- I was telling Jen Shahade, who's a, um, she's a women's grandmaster in chess and a professional poker player. I'm also Jewish. Yesterday she was giving, she was doing, she did me a favor and did a, a demonstration of poker for the end of this conference that on dark matter that I just, that just finished yesterday that I helped organize. And I was telling her that I first started pay, paying attention to the chess world because I was interested in the ways that the chess world had these parallel issues with how women were treated with um, the lack of visibility of women of color entirely. Um, So there are all of these like little bubbles where I think that you see the same dynamics unfolding. And so you might think, oh, but this is religion and what you do is science. For me, being Jewish and being a scientist are not necessarily super separate. And the dynamics, you can take the technical words out and the dynamics are very similar. And I think you're right um, that racism feeds off isolation. I, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I'm going to use that. I'll quote you. <laughs> that's just fine. Um, you know, it's interesting though. Like people often ask me if um, if Judaism shapes my activism. If I'm if I'm an activist because I'm Jewish, and I say I'm an activist because I have to be. I have no choice in our society. But I'm black. I'm queer. I'm I'm an activist. But Judaism sort of gives me a value system to to operate under. And so I'm just sort of curious about like how how does Judaism how does Judaism infuse your work or how does, how does Judaism, um, you know, shape the things that you do or does it at all? Yeah. So I guess the first thing to say here, right, is that I thought that being Jewish meant you were a labor activist until I was about 10 years old. <laughs> I finally got disabused of that notion. Um, so for a long time, I actually literally didn't understand that there was a difference between the two. Like I knew that there were activists who were not Jewish, but I thought that if you were Jewish, it meant that you were an activist. I think in mm-hmm. some sense, it was like being a Cohen. Like I just thought that like <laughs> um, being a Jew meant that you had been assigned the role of activist in life and that that was like part of part of your task. Um, you know, now, now that I'm 38 years old, maybe that is not such an off base 
way of thinking about things because I do think that there, you know, one of my middle names is Sojourner after Sojourner Truth. Mm. And people often assume that I'm the name, I got this name through the black side of my family, but actually it was white, my white Jewish grandmother, Salma James, who was insisting that I be named Sojourner Truth. And so actually my first name, Chanda, is a compromise. And I'm Chanda Rosalind Sojourner to make the, the grandparents happy. <laughs> um, and I think so much about that word Sojourner and um, the ways that it comes up in the Torah. Um, that we you were once a sojourner in a strange land that we must be welcoming to the sojourner that there these are like these very fundamental messages mm-hmm. um, that I think are driving the activism of, of groups like if not now right that are 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 saying that um, we must rethink how we build community who we consider to be part of our community I think one of the hard things that I had to kind of sit with was realizing at some point. And this is really like a relatively recent, like in the last 10 years that as a black Jew, I was interpreting all of this stuff completely differently from my white peers and not realizing it. And so I thought I was having conversations with white Jews with a certain mindset that was shared. And then I realized that when I talked about slavery Slavery for me was like a very present. My mom was born in a chattel house in Barbados. My mom grew up next to sugar cane fields that ostensibly her ancestors had been forced to work like a century before. And when I, you know, I'm going through, we were once slaves in Egypt. For me, what was coming up was we were once slaves in Barbados. We were once slaves in Trinidad. We were once slaves in South Carolina, like all of these places that members of my um, family got, got shipped off to, and particularly like my ancestors in Barbados very specifically. Um, the, it's not a metaphor for me. And it's not like a, well, the archeologists say it probably didn't happen, mm-hmm. but we also know um, we went through pogroms. Because also my family survived pogroms, right? And um, so I think my activism is very much shaped by a Black Jewish interpretation of the Torah and Jewish tradition that it took me a while to realize it was a Black Jewish interpretation. One that I think um, only amplifies and educates and um, activates in, in the best possible way if, if and as we make space for, you know, that, that, that make space and, and bring it to bear on the broader Jewish story. Yes, I, 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 w- I, would, I would agree. And, and I think that it's such a reminder that we have to always be expansive in how we think about Jew. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's, that's what I would say. What, who is a Jew um, is, is in some sense a, a, a building of that story. That's exactly right. I think that's exactly yeah, and I think right. that like what's interesting is that um, I think many Jews are starting to understand that the what the universal shared experience for many Jews is really an Eastern European experience. Um, and as at least the American Jewish community becomes more diverse, we have to we have to ask ourselves what is universal, what is actually our shared experiences, um, and and many of them probably won't be shared. And I think for um, for many many Jews who have who benefit from white privilege, um, that challenge of 
Um, actually, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. There was, <laughs> there was some point, but I'm just, yeah. And, and I just, I just liked what you said about, um, you know, that this, the sort of black Jewish experience, cause I, that is, um, definitely how, like when I give talks, I will say something like, you know, I am, I'm seeing this as through a black queer Jewish lens and I can't separate all of that out. That's just how I see the world. I, I think that, you know, part of it is also recognizing that the black Jewish community is really diverse, right? Like yes. even, even on this podcast, right? Like I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, uh, Sandra, you are not right. Mm -hmm. And, and, yeah. and I'm, that was something, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, I actually wasn't even the only black Jew in my high school class. That's how Jewish my high school and, and how black my high school was. Um, but, you know, it took me a while to realize that there were actually like black Jews out there um, who were not from biracial families, who were not from biracial Ashkenazi mm -hmm. um, black families, and that there were black Jews who were Jews by choice that there were black Jews who were Mizrahi and Sephardi and that there were a lot of different ways that, that people were, were black and Jewish. Um, and I, I do think that the, the moment we find ourselves in now has lots of opportunity and danger in it, which is that people are starting to be aware of the idea of Jew of color. Mm. They're, they're starting to be aware of the idea of black Jew. Um, we have to be really careful in our efforts to bring awareness, not to simplify the story of those identities, because they are a collection of, of identities. Um, and, and so I, I see that, I'm, I'm very curious to see what reconstructing Judaism is going to do in this moment with that, I guess. <laughs> well, I'll make one comment, um, and it, it emerged very much out of conversation with Shahani McKinney-Balden, who is, uh, I think her biography is a little bit more like yours than it is like Sandra's. And she'll, God willing, be a guest on the show at some point, and folks will get to meet her. Um, and she, she's a, she's the uh, co-chair of our Tikkun Alum Commission and a member of our board and a member of uh, the Reconstructionist Congregation in, in Madison, Wisconsin. And we were we, we just adopted a new strategic plan um, and we put uh, racial justice efforts and diversity, equity, and inclusion as a central goal of the strategic plan. And we were struggling with language and, and, and Shahana um, helped to originate the term Jews of color and also is really keenly aware of... Um, how it can be universalized, as you just said, and how it can efface, even as it can also raise up. And she was push she was pushing in the in the most constructive ways about like, well, what's the language we should we we have an opportunity here to help maybe solidify the language because it's it's murky. The language is murky, and language helps to describe realities and and how we interact with those realities. And where we landed in the strategic plan is this acronym of BIPOC, of Black, Indigenous, and People of Color rather than Jews of color, to, to, to kind of highlight that diversity you were just talking about. And I don't know if, I don't know if it's going to stick. I think it's very powerful. I remember the first time I saw it, I had to Google it. Like it, it's not intuitive and it, but it, it raises up different things. And it, I think it certainly, I, it invites questions. And hopefully at the end of the day, we're, we're relationship centered hopefully with a stance of welcome and curiosity 
toward the service of transformation, connection and liberation and transformation, um, I think that's so much more generative than boundary keeping and limiting. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in some sense, there are lots of different ways to think about like, what is, what is Judaism supposed to be doing? Like Judaism is a practice, Judaism is a community. And it's interesting to me that actually there are all these different ways in which, you know, uh, Judaism is um, defined as community, verb, all of, all of these things that actually we have some of the same challenges in the scientific community that like when you say science, you can mean a group of people, you can mean the practice of, of, of science, you can mean the collection of ideas that come out of the practice by the community. Um, and I think Judaism actually is, is, is very similar. And I don't necessarily, you know, the, the, the part of me that does science, technology and society studies is like, this is not a coincidence because um, science is built out of the academy and the academy is built out of the Christian church, which in many ways um, is, well, I don't know if this is maybe controversial, but I will say there's a lot of borrowing from Judaism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to, be, to be generous. Um, so I, I, I think that one of the things that we have to think about is what do we want it to, all of these different things to be and to be doing in the world and this comes in some sense to the question of awe and connection with the universe, with olam, which um, my, my spouse has been happily pointing out to people can mean space and time, eternal space, eternal time at the same time. So really um, his comment about this is that Jews knew that space time were unified the entire time. And Einstein love- was this making that manifest. <laughs> I just want to pause for our listeners in case you don't. So, so alam, which is like, we use it um, all the time, like in the blessing formula, it's we, whether we say melech ha'olam, like king of the world or, or ruach, like however you want it, like olam is almost always there. It's really, really central. And it is often very simply just translated it as, as world. Like it is the, all translations are acts of interpretation and it, it's often very flatly in, interpreted as just world. And so Chanda, you're talking about, in fact, it's, 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 it's much more expansive. It's much more full of potential than just that little flat translation. Well, I think it's interesting that it also means world, right? And I think the decisions that we make, for example, in Kol Haneshama, like um, of, of when there's a transliteration and then an interpretation into English, which word do we use for that interpretation? I think, you know, to make a very reconstructionist maybe comment about it is a social choice. We're always making that decision of in our time, what iteration of this word speaks to us and, and speaks to our sensibilities in our time. What does awe mean to us in 2021 probably means something different than it did in 1921. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, you know, to, to tie this into the work that I do, a lot of what I'm thinking about is that the universe is a pretty amazing thing. The universe, what we see in the sky is a very small fraction of what the universe is made of. The universe is mostly what we can't see. So most of the matter in the universe is dark matter. Um, It shouldn't be called dark matter. It should be called invisible matter because light goes right through it. 
um, or transparent or clear matter, anything like that. Most of the energy matter content in the universe is something that's called dark energy. Dark is also, it's a terrible um, word mm -hmm. for, for that too. Um, but the point is, is that physicists put the word dark in front of things that they don't understand. And that is also a social totally. question. And, and just to bring it back to like black interpretations versus how other people read things, when black people hear the word dark, it sounds different than I think when other people hear the word dark. And I think it's probably not just black people because I know discussions about colorism and skin color um, that, for example, our South Asian family are having these, these conversations as well. Um, but to, to call something dark matter when what you mean is matter that we can't find <laughs> is in some sense like a real statement about what you think the word dark means, right? Um, but I just want to say like the universe is mostly what we can't see. It's this incredible thing. And so when we talk about, you know, what are the words that we want to invoke, um, you know, what, what spirit and what feeling are we trying to have? We want people to have, what are we asking people to feel? The, Claudia Rankine writes so powerfully about exactly that kind of like that use of like black and dark in ways that are, um, even as they're supposed to be neutral descriptive terms, are overlaid with racial connotations. Um, I think it's so important for us to pay attention to it because the language helps us both to describe the world we're creating and also to the, the world we're living in, and also to create the world we want to live into. And so, yes, and 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 I think you know just to come back to you, Black Jewish experiences are diverse, right? I just want to mention that one of the things that we are really going to have to reckon with, and it's going to be hard because I don't think anybody's figured out how to have good conversations about colorism, to be honest. Um, that we do need to, we, if we talk about racism, but we don't talk about colorism in the specific way that that unfolds in the Jewish community, which can be different, um, then we're not really talking about racism in its entirety because colorism is part of the structure that upholds white supremacy, which is really the thing that we need to be tackling, right? And the reason I say it comes up in a very particular way in, in the Jewish community is because I'm lighter skinned. I experience less racism than people who are darker than me. Um, but it is also the case that um, being light brown means that I don't have the same kind of Ashkenazi experience, even within Ashkenazi-centric spaces, that people are more likely to be like, oh, so is your family like Mizrahi or Sephardi? Like just out of the blue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's why I say there's a unique version of it within, within the Jewish community. Yeah, so I, I wanted to like pivot for a, just a second, um, maybe more than a second, <laughs> but we had had this conversation at the beginning uh, before we started recording. Um, and by the time this airs, we're in the middle of Passover right now, by the time this airs, we'll be um, hopefully closer to liberation um, as a people. <laughs> Um, but, you know, we, we were talking about um, Haggadot, the Passover, the Passover book, um, books. So I recently made it, did a tweet about how um, using um, songs for Passover that's, that uniquely speak to the American slave experience so that were, many of these songs are written by slaves. And there's a there's a whole rich hist American slaves or American slave people. There's a whole rich history um, related to these songs and singing these songs during Passover. Um, out of context is problematic. Um, and I just wanted to know your, I want to hear, I, I hope our audience can hear some of the things that you had said um, before we started talking. Yeah. So 
you know, the first thing to say about Passover is that it's like this incredibly rich holiday. The Haggadah always has more things in it than you can possibly do without making everyone miserable, unless you serve <laughs> sake during the dinner like we do to make people a little bit more drunk. Mm. That's how we get past like no wine during the dinner is that we serve sake. <laughs> mm. Mm. And this is, um, or soju, actually, mm. um, for, yeah, uh, so... Um, and this is one way that, you know, we bring like Asian American tradition as, as a black and Asian American household in, into, into our, our theaters. Um, it's such a rich holiday that you don't need to appropriate. <laughs> this is, I guess like that's, that's one of the first comments that I want to make. But I think the other thing is, is that your algorithm should be, would this be awkward if there was a black Jew at my table? Would I feel funky doing this in front of a black Jew? Like, could I sit and look in the eye a black person, not even black Jew, but black person and sing go down Moses to them and not feel silly. And if the answer is I would feel silly, then you probably shouldn't be doing it even when there isn't a, a black person in the room. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize Jewish experiences with oppression, which are real. Um, you know, I was just reading an essay by someone from the Pittsburgh synagogue. So that's, we're not talking like ancient past. Um, that there are Jewish ways of telling these stories and you should reach into the tradition that is your Jewish tradition. So um, if you're a Black Jew, your Black Jewish tradition. If you're not a Black Jew, reach into your Jewish tradition as, you know, an Ashkenazi, as a Sephardi who um, had to reclaim Judaism after the expulsion from Spain. Right. So I think I just want to encourage people not to try and map European Jewish experiences onto Black experiences simply because it's hard to come up with a vocabulary for your own experience. And this one is so accessible. And I think the other comment I want to make about this is that it's um, there is a story that I think white Jews tell themselves sometimes about the legacy of white Jewish relations with Black Americans. And I think that this can sometimes serve to reify a mythology that is unhelpful as we try to make the Jewish community a better place for people of color. And so I want people to ask themselves, when I do this, what am I doing? And what work does that do in service of making the Jewish community the place it should be for all Jews? I think that's exactly right that I think that, you know, we talked, we started off by talking about paradox and holding multiple truths at once and I'm the the invitation of Passover and that the, 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 the great uh, pedagogical experience of Seder is it is it is looking backward but it's in the service of looking forward you know you know like and 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 to only focus the energies on what was misses the point about really unleashing all the potential of, of that radical act of empathy and transformation toward toward the future. You know, if 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 it somehow we're asked through identification and imagination to think, I was I was once enslaved, one way or another. Like then the implication is what? So what do we do about it? I'm, I, if I am now liberated, now what? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for others alongside me? What does that mean for others far away from me? What's the what is the just world that I need to be working toward? Yeah, maybe I can give an example of ways to have those conversations about communities that you might not be a part of. 
during your Seder. Please, that'd be great. Which is, I'm not Beta Israel. That I'm not an Ethiopian Jew. I am. I haven't had the experience of of moving to Israel and 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 having that entire experience. So one year, I actually had everyone get up from the table and go watch. I think a 15 minute video that was interviews with members of Beta Israel about their experiences. And so instead of having people, you know, voice the experiences of others, I actually said, like, let's listen to the experiences mm -hmm. of a community that, and, and I should say that my satyrs are often, I'm very like Gentile heavy. <laughs> and so these are not, this is my opportunity to educate people who are not Jewish as well about the breadth of the issues that the Jewish community faces. So I'm learning, other people are learning, we're all learning together, but I think, I don't know, maybe someone will write in and say, Chanda, you did that wrong. But from my point of view, that was the way to do it was rather than having printing something out and saying, read this, actually take advantage of the fact that we live in this technological era um, and that, you know, you can turn on the TV, you can turn on YouTube and actually listen to people in their own voices. I think that this is, I'll borrow the hashtag own voices that people talk about in the literary community of listening to people on their own terms rather than constructing the terms on which you will listen to mm -hmm. them. I think we have to, we, we have to wind down. It's been so, so rich. I think uh, at the risk of, uh, you know, asking too big a question at the end, can we go back to that conversation about awe and just, uh, I do think that there's that point of intersection in the, in, in science and in religion about asking questions of, of the ultimate in a way. And I, and I think, you know, you, you, you talk about staring up at the night sky and, and I always think about the, you know, like the, 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 that vastness and how small and both inconsequential and, and consequential I am, you know, that like, I feel my own limitations and I also always try to feel my own agency at that moment. And so can, can I, can we ask you to, close us yeah. out with some reflections on what you how, how you define awe what you how you evoke awe yes so part of what I wanted to do in the disordered cosmos in my book was make the case for particle physics and cosmology outside of the context of why they've traditionally been funded which is because of the legacy of the Manhattan Project and that's really particle physics grows up as a field because of the Manhattan Project. That's where the, the money for it came from. And I really wanted to make the case that we as a species have evolved under this night sky. And every single community has somehow told a story about the night sky. And so this is one of the reasons that the Ma'ariv appears in at the end of my introduction, that that is part of the Jewish story of, of the night sky. Um, and of, you know, the moon as, as, as the night star, right? And we, I believe, have a really intimate, emotional, psychosocial connection to the night sky that is precious and is something that links us across communities, across geographies, across cosmologies, community cosmologies. And so I wanted to call people's attention to that and say that it is something that is precious. And it is also something that is under threat as more of these um, satellite constellations get launched by Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, that actually the night sky does not look the way 
even if you can have access to a dark night sky, it does not look the way that it, it used to. And as we're thinking about making changes to the moon, we really need to think about what does it mean for a few people to make a decision on behalf of the entire planet, what the sky will look like forever, given this powerful emotional relationship we have with it. And in relation to that, how can we get Black and Indigenous and other children access of being under the stars and feeling their relationship with the universe. So for me, that's eyes feeling the relationship with the universe, I think. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'd like to thank our guest, Shonda Prescott-Weinstein, for our wonderful discussion, this amazing discussion. And um, it's just, I'm just really honored to have had this opportunity to be in conversation with you. For more information on this topic, you can look on Hashivena's website, which is hashivenu.fireside.fm. You can also find more resources on reconstructingjudaism.org and on ritualwell.org. You can also find more about Shonda on her website, profcpw.com. And please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rabbi Sandra Lawson. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashi Venu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashi